Well, good morning, church. Hey, uh, if you haven't heard yet, uh, Carlos Canaveral, who's our worship director, got married yesterday. And uh, yeah, so we gave him the Sunday off. Right. He'll be back at work tomorrow or he's fired. No, I'm just kidding. He has the week off. And so when you see him uh, in the weeks to come, uh, give him a high five. Katya is his wife. She plays the key. She's been on worship team before. Uh, just a, a, a neat day for them. If you're new uh, here at Faith Covenant, welcome. Uh, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And we are in a series entitled The Gospel According to Genesis. And I want to ask you a question as we get started. Are you ready to be surprised this morning? Morning. Yes. All right, because I can almost guarantee you that 95% of you, what I'm going to share with you this morning as we close the service is something you have never heard before. So if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, you're going to need it because we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you're new, we're in episode 5 of the series of season 1 of the Gospel According to Genesis and we are using this language of episodes and seasons because it's really kind of felt like a TV show, hasn't it? Because you, you've got main characters, you've got plot twists, you've got villains, you've got this ups and downs, and every week there seems to be something new, and inside there's wonder, there's awe. But the difference between a television show and what we're looking at here in God's Word is, this is true. Like, this is legit. Everything you're reading actually happened. And so I want to make sure you, you've got your Bible, and, and I hope you're ready to dig in. Uh, growing up, I loved to play sports. I don't know about you, but I love playing all kinds of sports, football, soccer, basketball, whatever. In fact, if you lived in our neighborhood and someone said, let's go play stickball in the street, I was in. It didn't matter what the sport was. But it wasn't until I began to coach that I really began to understand some things. I remember coaching a couple of really good teams, and on one of those teams, we had a player who was exceptionally gifted. He could score like no one I had ever seen. He was pretty teachable. He was able to rebound. He was able to assist, but he had one really annoying thing about him. When the game was over, he lived in the box score. Immediately before the game, before we could get off the floor, he was over at the scorer's table trying to know how many points he had scored, how many rebounds he had grabbed, how many assists he had dished out. And the other annoying piece was he knew what your stats were I remember one week, uh, a player on our team who was very average, actually, <laughs> what, uh, on the court at least, got recognized by the paper. A whole article was written about him and some of the things that were going on in his life, and I remember that gifted player walking into the locker room, carrying the paper in his hand, dropping it on the floor, stepping on it, and walking right by that young man. And in your life, maybe you've seen something like that happen in your workplace. Maybe for you, you've seen that happen in some athletic environment in which you participated. Or, or maybe a musical environment where you and someone else or you saw some people vying for first chair. Or maybe artistically, 
It had to do with a person's artwork. Their artwork had to be hung in the most prominently displayed area. So everybody else gave them the recognition that they thought and were sure that they deserved. In the sports world, we see it like this. The person loves the name on the back of the jersey more than the front. They all live for themselves. As you look at Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, that's the story. Two lines emerge. And one of those lines point to the name on the back of the jersey, point to self. They're all about their ego, about self-promotion. They are anti-God in every way, shape, and form. But there is another line. The promised line from the seed of woman that will point, in a sense, to the name on the front of the jersey. Uh, an, uh, who points to a redeemer, that points to a messiah, that points to a sanctifier, that points to a, a coming king. And the question we have to ask is, which one of these two lines that we're about to look at best represents me? Which of these two lines that we're about to look like best represent my family, represent our church? As I evaluate my life and as I think about the things that are going on, am I characterized more by the line that's going to point to the name on the back of the jersey or with the line that points to the name on the front? Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 starts with two lines. This is what it says. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, what's Eve thinking about in this moment? Because remember last week, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there is a he coming, a singular male pronoun, who is to come. And in this moment, Eve is thinking, this is the he. It's him. Because remember, she has no idea that Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is speaking to a coming Messiah that's speaking to someone by the name of Jesus Christ. All she knew was that God was going to bring from her line a male who would one day crush the head of Satan. And she thought, in this moment, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. It certainly seems like she's responding here in belief and thinks, Lord, is this the guy? Is this the guy that's going to deliver us from all this atrocity, all of this train wreck, all of these issues that my husband and I have committed, that we brought upon this world, and we know that this is not the case? Look at verse 2, because a second child arrives. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Cain and Abel, whether you've been in church for a minute or your whole life, maybe outside the church, two of the most famous brothers in the world. If you don't know the story, there's two brothers that represent now these two lines moving forward, two kids with two very different responses to God. And I want you to notice that in verse 3, both of these kids, both of these sons of Adam and Eve, bring an offering to the Lord. Verse 3, in the course of time, 
Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering, he did not look with favor. Two sons, two different offerings. Cain brings an offering from the ground. Why? He's a farmer. That's what he had. He works the soil. He grows food. And so what does he bring? He brings fruits and grains and that sort of stuff. Abel, it says, brings an animal from his flock. Why? Because he's a shepherd. That's what he has, so that's what he brings. And some people say, well, maybe God didn't like one and like the other because of uh, one offering is better. No, no, not true. Both offerings are fine. Grain and fruit are animals. They're both fine by God. Leviticus tells us that either sacrifice is okay in the eyes of God. So this idea that God accepts one and doesn't accept the other isn't about the nature of what they're bringing. It has more to do with the heart. You know what? It almost always has to do with the heart. It has to do with how they're bringing it. Both have this external religious behavior, but one of them has a heart for God and and one of them doesn't. And you see that evidence in the wording here in the text. It says, Cain brought an offering, but Abel brought the fat portions. He brought the absolute best. One of them threw a couple of bucks on an offering plate and thought he was good. And the other one said, God, you deserve my absolute best. One of them went out into his land and said, you know what? I just got to bring something. So just somebody give me something. The other one went out into his flock and said, what is the absolute best that I have? And let me bring that to the Lord. Two very, very different offerings. And take a look at Cain's response when God does not accept his offering. Look at verse five. It says, so Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain is furious at God for rejecting or not accepting his offering. And just like Adam and Eve after they sinned, God now gives Cain an opportunity. He actually gives Cain an offering to say, hey, Cain, push the pause button, man. Stop what you're doing. Come to me. Confess. Repent. Change direction. Don't follow this road that you're walking down because where it leads you, you do not want to go. Turn now before anger brings about something greater in you. He says, come to me. God is in a sense saying, hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it's gonna consume you if you allow it. You need to turn back to the truth. You need to turn back to me. But unfortunately, we know how this story goes, don't we? We know that that is not the case. That is not at all how this in Cain does not say, you know what? My bad. Look at verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
In cold blood, vengeance is now enacted by Cain on his innocent brother. He's, he's angry at the Lord, but he takes out his jealous-fueled rage on his brother. That's who he murders. And yet God is gracious and offers Cain not just one opportunity, he's getting ready to offer him a second opportunity to turn back to him. That's verse nine. It says, and the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see that phrase, brother's keeper? He's actually mocking God and he's mocking his brother as if to say, <laughs> he raises animals as if somehow what his brother did was considerably less than what he did. One of us has a real job. One of us are just playing around. That's the insinuation here. And yet God, kind of in his graciousness, says something else. He's mocking him, and, and, he, and God says, what have you done? Not like, what have you done? I'm stumped. I don't know what to do here. No, not like that at all. He's like, what have you done? He's asking Cain in order to give Cain an opportunity to soften and pause and to consider this moment of tragedy of what has unfolded by his hands and in this moment again to turn back because in the moment he has allowed anger to consume him. He's allowed sin to have its way with him. But God is inviting him back to a relationship, back to a place of confession, back to a place of repentance. And it's an invitation to be honest. So many times parents look, look at their kids and they know. And it's an invitation, just be honest. It doesn't take away or doesn't justify uh, what you did, but it's a chance just to be honest. But so many times, kids like us or me, we double down. And while honesty can't ultimately fix the problem, it would have been an offering from Cain to say, Lord, this is what happened. This is what I did. God, I'm so sorry. And Cain demonstrates now another quality of this line. This line you're gonna see is categorized by a hardness towards sin. A hardness towards sin. There's no conviction, there's no sorrow, there's certainly no sense of repentance here. And we'll see Cain and his entire line that comes after him only consumed with self, always pointing to the name on the back of the jersey. Look at verse 11, it says, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And if you can believe it, verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. God says you're out. You know, you're out just like, you know, your parents were out because you've now murdered your brother in cold blood and the ground that you used to reap its rewards where you were harvesting grain and you were harvesting fruit and it was producing food for you, it will no longer do that. It will no longer be fruitful for you. And after murdering his brother over an offering, the only response he can think of is, God, this is too much. Not God, I'm sorry. Oh, God. I've blown it. No, 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 God, this is too much. 
I can't possibly bear this punishment for my sin. Cain has now alienated himself from his brother and he's alienated himself from his God and he will be a nomad without a home and certainly without security. Look at verse 14. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be, re- I, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Do you see the irony here? He refuses to be honest with God about what he's done and he's fearful that someone else is going to do to him what he did to his brother. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. I want you to remember that line, seven times over. It says, then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So many times people look and go, Kevin, he puts a mark on him. What does that mean? Commentators have all sorts of thought. You want to know what that means? No idea. (laughs) No idea. There's all sorts of thoughts about that. I, I, I don't know, but what I do know is God physically marks him. Marks him somehow in a very clear way so that everybody knows not only that God's the one that marked him, but they also all know Cain is off limits. Somehow it was clear. It wasn't like, hmm, I wonder what that mark means. No, everybody knows that Cain is off limits. And if you mess with my boy Cain over here, you're going to get my wrath on you seven times over. So you can't really have a threat on somebody if, if you don't know that the person is capable of doing the threat. Sort of like when the toddler goes, Dad, I'll beat you up. Okay, calm down right? You know, but if, you know, someone larger says that and they say, I'm going to beat you down seven times over. But right here, he says, if you take this man's life, you're going to get my wrath on you seven times over, a visual sign for all to see. And in, in, in a sense, this is an incredible act of grace by the Lord to allow him to survive. Because what he's saying is, this sin, it can't be justified. It can't be ignored. Cain must pay a penalty for his actions, and so Cain is now banned, and he's blessed at the same time. You're like, how is he banned, and how is he blessed? He's marked this man in a positive sense. He leaves God's presence, but he doesn't leave God's protection. That's a big deal. He's still under the covering on on some level, He leaves God's presence, but he's still under the the protection. So even in the midst of yet another tragic action at the hands of humanity, God gives his grace and mercy. Why? So that perhaps his heart would soften and maybe understand the significance of what God has done on his behalf. But no. Look at verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Did you catch what just happened there? What did God tell him he was going to do? He's going to be a wanderer. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be a wanderer. But what does Cain do? He says, you know what, God? Mm, Yeah, no, I'm not going to be a wanderer. In fact, I'm going to go settle down and I'm going to build a city and I'm going to build that city for the glory of the name on the back of my jersey because I'm going to name that city after my son, Enoch. I'm not going to be a wanderer. 
I'm going to be a look at me type of guy. I'm going to do the exact opposite of what you told me to do. And in my hardness, I'm going to continue to go down that road of sin that is crouching at my door. And with every step that I take, with every brick that he lays, with every house that he builds, he is allowing sin to consume consume him. I'm gonna set up shop and I'm gonna build this city to the glory of me and to the glory of my line. And who cares what God has to say? It's outright defiance. It's a story of Cain and Abel. And now from verse 18 to 24, we get a list of Cain's descendants. We get a list of the line of rebellion, not the line of redemption. That line is to come. We get a list of the line of rebellion. This is the line of Satan that's been foretold in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all because of the fall. It starts with Cain, and this train wreck is just the beginning. And just seven generations down from Adam, we're going to meet another guy by the name of Lamech. And here, things just seem to get worse. Look at verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and one named Zillah. That's the first case of polygamy that we see in our Bible committed at the hands of a man from the line of Cain. Is polygamy ever good in scripture? No. You wanna know what it comes from? It comes from the line of Cain and it starts right here in Genesis. He has clearly disregarded God's plan. What's God's plan? Pastor Alex told us in Genesis chapter two, verse 24. One man, one woman, together in a covenant relationship for life. That's God's plan. And this guy goes, mm, yeah. No, because if one is good, then two must be better. And he says, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to take two. But you know what's interesting is Ada, that name Ada, means ornament or pretty. And the name Zilla means sweetness of voice. The implication is a sweet voice and a pretty face. That's the implication here. The implication is these ladies are probably not bad looking at all. And Lamech says, God, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. I want, want both. I don't care what you have said about the sanctity of marriage. I don't care what you've said about a covenant relationship. I, I just don't care. I want both ladies, and I'm going to show the world my glory, and I'm going to put the glory of me on display. This is the type of guy that points to the name of the back of the jersey. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want to do it, and for whatever reason I want. This is one of the first indicators that we see of a culture that is abandoning God and abandoning God's word, and it all comes in the form for, in, of sexual deviancy, specifically in the area of marriage. And it's not just polygamy, by the way, that marks Lamech and his line and his family. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Hey, ladies, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. You thought Cain was a bad boy. I'm the bad boy. I mean, you look at me cross and I'm gonna kill you. Oh yeah, if you think that that guy had any sort of uh, power, any sort of greatness, oh no, 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 no. If you thought he was important, 
And how he bowed up to his brother Lamech says, buckle your seatbelt. I'm going to put my manhood on display. I'm going to show, show you how far sin can be extended in my family. He's bragging about murdering a boy who just merely struck him in the face. And he murders him just like his great, 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 great grandfather Cain. And here's the part as you read the story that's completely unexpected. Because you start reading this because we're, we're seeing the line of Lamech and you're like, where is society going? Because it's got to be bad, right? Because what becomes of a society like this? What becomes of a line that rebels against God, that leaves the blessings of God in angry defiance of his laws and his sacrifice, marked by murder and polygamy and anger-filled rage? What happens you know what happens? It prospers. Isn't that just annoying? <laughs> it prospers. Watch what becomes from Lamech's three sons. This is incredible. Verse 20. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. So Jabal's the father of the Bedouin lifestyle. And so the father of this nomad tent-dwelling people. But there's something called animal husbandry. Don't think bestiality because, you know, that's not what this means at all. Animal husbandry is when you uh, have herds and you sell them for profit. So that's, he's the first one that said, not only will I take cattle, goats, sheep, camels, and raise them for my family, I'm gonna raise them and sell them off. I'm gonna raise them and trade them for other goods. I'm gonna be a business person. That's this guy right here. And so society is slowly advancing. Look at verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. So this guy is credited with being the world's very first musician. The father of all the arts, the father of all music, comes from the line of Cain. Look at verse 22. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. So he's giving credit with being the father of sort of industry and warfare and sort of working with metal, developing tools and, and larger structures. So from these three sons of this devious, sinful man, we get the raising and the trading of, of livestock, the arts, the music, metal forging, incredible technological advancements that started then and have made its way all the way down to us today, common graces in our world today. Genesis is making the point that through the ungodly line of Cain, at this point in time, the world's greatest and most significant cultural discoveries are not from the line of Abel, not from the godly line, but from the ungodly. How crazy is that? Some of you are like, that's why that sinful rock music, no. That's not, that's not what he's saying at all. But what's even crazier is many of the children's name in the line of Cain have to do with God. One of Cain's children is named God. One of them is named the house of God. One of them has the name priest of God and so on. But while their names mean one thing, their lifestyles and their choices mean something very, very different because there's no following him. There's no obedience to him. There's no desire to please him. It's again, it's all about the name on the back of the jersey. 
And so while technology and, and business skill and the creative arts, they're flourishing, morality is plummeting. There's a hardness towards sin, a mocking of God's word. There's anger and, and violence is just applauded. There's no softening in repentance, just brazen disregard for God and his word. There's a consumption of self and an infatuation with the name on the back of the jersey. And if we're honest, are things really all that different today? Really, are, are things all that different today? Is it difficult to find parallels here? We live in a society today where technologically we are skyrocketing, but at the same time, our morality is in the toilet. We're tanking. We could put a man on the moon, but we can't walk across the street to love our neighbor. We'll fly millions of miles away in the name of mankind and won't walk across the street to love a neighbor. We've all but eradicated diseases like polio and measles and smallpox and malaria, yet we can't heal the evils of the human heart. Thousands of years later, we don't look all that different, do we? The famous comedian George Carlin said this. I'm going to paraphrase because it's, you know, George Carlin. So um, he writes, the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings and shorter tempers. We have wider freeways and narrower viewpoints. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much and love too seldom and hate too often. We have learned how to make a living but not a life. We've added years to life, but not life to those years. We've cleared up the air, but polluted the soul. We've conquered the atom, but not our own prejudices. These are days of two incomes that we live in, but far more divorce. We live in fancier homes while we all live in broken homes. In a moment like this, we need to press pause and ask the question, is that me? Is that you? Is that us as a church? Like if we stop, if we really stop to think about the character qualities of this line that God has just put on display before us, does any of that ring true about me and my line? Now, before you say, Kevin, I'm not a rage-filled, murdering polygamist, so I'm good, Hold on a second. <laughs> Remember, Cain went through all of the religious rigmarole. He offered sacrifices. He threw a couple bucks in the plate. I mean, he, he, he probably joined a small group. He probably served in the nurseries. I think he probably did that. He, he, he probably named his kids, you know, after God on the exterior. He played the part really well. Those around him would have seen some semblance to God on the outside. There were certainly elements there, but under the surface, he's faking it. 
God was not his delight. God was not his treasure. God was not his world. That is what's characterized by the line of Cain, the line of Satan, stemming all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Seven generations from Cain to Lamech, corruption has appeared morally, merrily, theologically. Cain's family is a picture, unfortunately, of where we are today in a lot of ways. Now, if you've been keeping up, you're probably asking the question, two brothers, there's supposed to be two lines. One of them just died. So what happens in the other line? Where do we get this other line from? Where do we get this singular male pronoun he? What line is he coming from who's going to save and redeem the world? And it's here that God develops a second line that does not look to self, but who has lifted their eyes to the Lord. Are they perfect? No. But there certainly is something different about their heart. Look at verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. That name means appointed for. I like that. Saying God has granted me or appointed for me Another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and his name was Enosh. And that name Enosh means mortal. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So despite this train wreck that's coming out of this line of Cain, they are not left without hope. Chapter four tells us the story of this ungodly line, this line of rebellion, a line of people that live for themselves, a line of people that only could point to the name on the back of their jersey. But chapter five is gonna tell the story of a godly line and he uses the genealogy to do it. And if we're honest, most of you in here who've read your Bibles get to Genesis chapter five and as you begin to read, you see names and numbers and you see a genealogy and you skip it. You put your Bible reading on 1.5 and it starts talking really quick because you're, you know, you're just going to move right on through Genesis chapter 5 because you don't think there's anything here for you. What you do is you look and you say, well, that's an old dude, Methuselah, 969, and you use it to win trivia contests in your life. Methuselah, that's the answer, oldest man in your Bible. Okay, win, win contest with that. But I think when we do that, we miss something. There's something very, very deep happening right here, and it happens in a genealogy. You know, the, the number one podcast in the history of this church, the number one podcast of one of my sermons that were, that's the most downloaded over a thousand times, Matthew chapter one, the genealogies. Because I showed you why the genealogy was there. I'm going to do the same thing for you this morning. Three things that happen right here in chapter 5 that you need to know. Because Moses gives us a ton of detail about this ungodly line in chapter 4. But we don't get a lot of information, a lot of story behind this godly line and what it looks like. In fact, you skip it all together. Here's the first important thing you need to know about this godly line. Look at Genesis 4, 26. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Something happens. I don't know if there was spiritual complacency or what's going on, but they began to call on the name of the Lord. What that idea there is, they began to worship. 
They began to, 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 to look at, to speak of, to talk about Yahweh, this personal, intimate God. Something happens and mankind finally begins to look at the Lord. Perfectly, we know that's not the case, but something raises their eyes up off themselves. Second, look down in chapter five, verse 24. It's about a guy named Enoch. Well, there's, you know, there's a, a person in Cain's line named Enoch, but there's also a man by the name of Enoch in Seth's line. Enoch, his name means to bring. So it says, Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. And most people want to go, took him away, what does that mean? Yeah, crazy story. We don't have a lot of time to get into it this morning. But apparently, God takes this guy literally before he dies. God takes him away before he dies. There's only two instances of that in the Old Testament. This guy and a dude by the name of Elijah, that before death, God just literally takes them to heaven. But the important part here, though, really is we see a characteristic of this man that is assumed in the rest of this line that Enoch walked with God. How about your line? Does your line walk with God? This isn't about going to church. This isn't about the, the religious exterior stuff. That word walk has the idea of intimacy. The idea that starts here and goes all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament as well, that the people of God are to walk with God. It's symbolic of those who desire to honor God above everything else in their lives. So juxtaposed to the other sinful line, we have men and women that are pointing back to God causing other people to join them in the worship of God and to hear about God because they themselves are walking with God from Abel to Seth to Enosh to Enoch and finally ending with a guy by the name of Noah. Noah will be the 10th in this generation of men that are highlighted in this line that worships God. And the third point is most people go, Kevin, each week you've shown us the gospel in Genesis. But we haven't seen it yet. Every time you skip Genesis chapter five, you skip the gospel. Why is that? Every time I preach, but this morning especially, every time I've told you a name of an individual, I've told you what their names mean. Why? Because names have meaning. Names have meaning. And so if you didn't know that, Adam means man. Eve means life. All these names mean something from Adam to Noah. As you look at all of these descendants, all 10 men that are mentioned specifically here in chapter five, you know why this chapter reads like this? Because if you put these 10 names together, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, uh, Lamech, and Noah, if you see all 10, 10 names, and if you put those names and you line them up together, they form a very interesting sentence you've never heard before. Here's what their names mean start to finish. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down 
teaching his death shall bring the disparaging rest. Still think you should skip chapter five. The gospel of Genesis five is in the names. Man appointed, mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching his death shall bring the disparaging rest. Isn't that great? There's a sense that even in this line, he could tell a story about 10 generations line and how they did it right. They're not the hero of the story. The Messiah is. There's still the hope of the Messiah. He is still pointing to the Messiah that God has not forgotten humanity and that God has not forgotten you. He's not forgotten you in your marriage. He's not forgotten you in your loneliness. He's not forgotten you in your addiction. He's not forgotten you in your parenting. He's not forgotten you in your workplace. He says that one day, rest, that's the name of Noah, by the way. Noah means rest. One day, rest will come. But not because of Noah. Noah's not the hero of the book. It's a cool story. But Seth, the, the line that comes through Seth points to the name on the, no, on the front of the jersey. Church, our God made a promise all those years ago that a redeemer would come to bring a savior that will finally crush the head of Satan. And he did it, that our God who was faithful then is still faithful to you today. And so the purpose of the church is so that faithful men and women would worship this God, that they would speak of this God, that they would point to this God, this God of grace and mercy that he's offered to us. A church that points not to the name on the back of the jersey, but the name on the front, because we live for something far greater than you and I. We live for something far greater than our reputation, far greater than our name, far greater than the toys that you fight so hard to buy. A world that would see us worship. And when they watch us worship, they would say, there's something different about that group of people. And they would be invited in and live among us. Everywhere we live, learn, work, or play, we would lift our hands in worship and that they would see the God of the Bible. They would see people who call upon the name of the Lord. They would see a faithful church who serves a faithful God. The gospel of Genesis 5. Man appointed, mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down teaching his death, shall bring the disparaging rest it is still the gospel today.